Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, I'm joined, as per usual, by Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics. Hey, Ryan, all is well? Everything's well. Busy weekend, but everything's good. Good. Uh, we just chatted on Friday, and I'll come back to this in a second. Uh, this is a little bit of an unusual podcast, but uh, so we talked a couple of days ago. So you had a good weekend. I did. Good. Until I had to fill up at the pump. Yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, What's we'll your indicator? Back. We'll come back to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's we'll your indicator. That. What'd yeah. you pay? Three buck forty? Three buck fifty for a gallon? Oh no, you get premium. You, you don't you? You get the premium in these SUVs now, so it's I'm over four. Oh, really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Really, you have to get premium. I I didn't know that. Well, maybe not in your SUVs, but uh, you should be. Oh really? Huh. Okay. Chris, you get premium? Oh, yeah, you're the first. Oh, I do not. You get I, you get the super octane <laughs> plus. No, Chris plugs his nope. cars in. Oh, does he? Nope. Oh, you don't? I get, I get the cheap stuff. Mm. Oh, and that's Chris Dorides, Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. Uh, and yeah. uh, you had a good weekend also? I did. I did, yep. A I little a on piece. the cool side. But. I know. Jeez, it's already winter here. Um, I wrote a piece on inflation, so... Uh, apropos to the conversation today, because we're going to be talking about the history of inflation. This podcast is going to be different. This is uh, for, this is going to air the week of Thanksgiving, uh, so we're, uh, it's a little over a week from now. So this is more of a kind of an evergreen. We're not going to do the statistics today like we normally do. We're just going to dive right into the topic at hand and inflation. And this is a really uh, we're going to take a, a step back first here and talk about the history of inflation. Uh, inflation since the uh, nation's founding, uh, hopefully uh, learn some lessons from our experiences of inflation past, and then talk about uh, inflation now, because obviously that hair on fire, you know, kind of moment, everyone's really upset about the 6% plus CPI inflation report we got last week. And uh, so I uh, want to talk about that. Um, so that so this is a little bit different. Uh, I will say, you know, if you're you, you, you really do miss us uh, week of Thanksgiving. You can always follow me on Twitter at Mark Sandy. So. Uh, <laughs> so just an advertisement. Uh, I'll, I'll be tweeting for sure, uh, you know, during this period. So uh, please feel free. I just want to know um, who wins the uh, volleyball. Exactly. That's what right. So that's why I'll be tuning in. So <clears throat> yeah. That, post it. We're all gearing up for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, oh, the volleyball for folks who weren't listening a couple of uh, podcasts ago, volleyball is, what the Zandies do on Thanksgiving, we go into a racquetball court set up as a vol- you know, volleyball in a racquetball. I think, I think it's racquetball court. Yeah. So it allows the old guys to play with the young guys, the women to play with the men. We can all kind of be equalized. So it's a lot of fun. So uh, someone always gets injured. Hopefully it's not me, but you know, someone always gets injured, but I'll let you know. Um, okay. Let's dive in. Uh, so the way I was thinking about framing this conversation, or at least around the history was I've identified half a dozen inflation eras, let's call them. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about the era and then you know what we learned uh, uh, about inflation, inflation dynamics from that experience. And um, uh, uh, very quickly, maybe I should just name the eras, see if you guys agree or disagree with, with this kind of breaking up of history. So uh, era number one, Pre-Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve was put on the planet back in 1913. So anything from the beginning of the nation's founding, let's say, you know, 1770s through uh, early 1900s, that's the pre, 
Federal Reserve era. That's an inflation era. Second, the depression of the 30s, uh, that we saw deflation during that period. So uh, that's a period unto itself. That's the second era. Third era, World War II, Korean War. So that was the 40s through most of the 50s, at least the, the mid-50s, moderation and shortages, and talk a little bit about that. Uh, that then the fourth era is the period of what I call great inflation. That that, that was re- really actually began in the mid-60s, and then inflation steadily accelerated through the 70s, kind of peaked in the 80s, and it didn't really kind of normalize until you know uh, late 80s, early 1990s. Uh, so that's the fourth period. The fifth period I call the great moderation, that's uh, the 1990s and uh, in the two th- to, through 2010. That was a, a positive supply shock, you know, the uh, tech boom and the impact that on inflation. And then, of course, uh, the low inflation period after the financial crisis. Uh, uh, that's the most uh, uh, recent period. And then now here, uh, that, so that's six different eras. And then now here today, we're talking, we're, at the, we're uh, in the middle of the pandemic and we're starting to see inflation again. And uh, we'll talk about that as well. So what do you think that's a generally pretty good way of thinking about the history of inflation in the context of the United States? Does that make sense to you guys? Anything it does. It's a lot, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. But I think that's the right. Those certainly are all the, the major eras. So we may spend more time on some versus others. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's one period I could not kind of fit into the frame that was between 1955 and 1965 it's like not influenced by wars the korean war kind of ended by then Uh, but there was you know inflation was kind of moderate during that period so there was that's the 10-year period that i didn't put anywhere so i'm not sure what to do with that one but so so this is like a a walk down memory lane of your professional career as an economist (laughs) yeah it's so funny because just per chance i picked up a a book on Andrew Jackson. I was reading a little bit about the second bank of the United States. And this gets to the first period pre federal reserve. And, um, do you guys want to take a crack at characterizing that period? I mean, I got a sense of things, but uh, do you want to characterize that period, uh, in terms of the inflation performance and what was going on? Anybody want to take a crack at that? I feel like a little well, bit there wasn't a lot of inflation except around the war of 1812. And then, the Civil War when we had to finance the, the wars. But overall, inflation, wasn't it moderate? It was all over the map. It, yeah, it was chaos. Oh, volatility right? chaos. was high. Yeah, maybe yeah. average. Lots of inflation, lots of deflation, lots mm-hmm. of inflation, lots of deflation. I mean, it was the cycle, the business cycle, lots of business cycles. It was it was economic chaos. Yeah, yeah the wildcat banking era, right? Yeah. Which just up, down, all around, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, so it was, there was really uh, no anchor to inflation at that time. It was really all over the place. And I think that goes to the lack of a central bank. I think that's a lesson of that period. And uh, the U.S. government set up the first bank of the U.S. You know, soon after uh, the Revolutionary War. That had a very short charter. And then there was a brief period before they set up the second bank of the United States, I think that was early 1800s to like 1840, something like that. And, uh, you know, it was kind of loosely managing monetary policy. I mean, it was issuing banknotes that were backed by gold, so they were relatively stable. Uh, but, uh, of course, this is where Andrew Jackson came in. He did not like the second bank because he, I think, I think it's probably true, there was a bit of corruption there. The second bank would give credit and loans to uh, curry favor uh, to politicians and finance Jackson's opponents. And I think he you know, took, as you would expect, umbrage to that. And 
uh, when the charter for the second bank came up again, I think in you know the 1830s, he said he vetoed it. He didn't vote for it. And I think, oh, actually, I think he won the, I, I think this actually helped him win the election of 1832 uh, because, um, you know, he railed against, this is age old, right? Rail against the, the New York banks. Uh, in this case, it was a Philly bank, the Philadelphia bank. Was, the second bank was in Philadelphia. And the building's still there. Yeah, it's still there, right? I think it's a museum, right? It is. I've never been. Have you been to that museum? I don't think so. No, that, no. you know, that sounds bad, though. Sounds uh, awful as economists. We didn't go yeah, and exactly. visit there. Yeah, we should really do that. All right, uh, field trip. Maybe a field yeah. trip for the whole <laughs> road trip for the podcast. I'm sure they'll. I'm sure people will appreciate that that field trip. <laughs> uh, we'll set up the podcast booth right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, but then there, I think we were completely rudderless without any kind of anything that approached the central bank. Throughout the through the Civil War, the eighteen hundred late eighteen hundreds into the early nineteen hundreds, and then uh, we had the nineteen the panic of nineteen oh seven, and that was a doozy of a panic, and I think that has spooked people, and they said we need you know some stability here, we need a central bank, and so by nineteen thirteen, they had set up the Federal Reserve. So I think the 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 lesson from that period would be central banks play a key role in terms of inflation, greed. Disagree. Yeah, well, yeah. I think you can take both approaches. Like central banks play, from some economists' perspective, a key role in keeping inflation low. Other economists have argued central banks are the root cause of inflation because they're just printing money. Austrians. I mean, if inflation is too high, they, they, yeah. they do, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I guess this goes to crypto somehow, doesn't it? They, this goes to the, 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 we're talking about the Federal Reserve in the U.S. inflation, but certainly central banks overseas aren't have shown less discipline, and uh, as a result, have uh, have not had stable inflation, and uh, that instability has created demands for alternatives like now crypto. So if you're like in El Salvador, the central bank of El Salvador is not well; they dollarized, I guess, but that yeah, you know, but. Um, but I guess you're right. Central banks are good and bad depending on where you sit, I suppose. Well, you would say, Ryan, though, that the Federal Reserve has done a, a good job, right? I mean, if you look at a chart of yes. inflation or growth since the beginning of the country, you, could, you can clearly see mm-hmm. when the Federal Reserve was put in place, right? Before that, it was, as Chris said again, <laughs> chaos. And after that, it's been a relatively a period of relative stability. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any other lessons from that period? Well, the other lesson, I'm not sure if it's related to inflation, is that uh, pay your debts. Um, you know, Alexander Hamilton uh, decided early on that he was going to pay off the Revolutionary War debt, even though it was trading at pennies on the dollar at the time, because no one thought that the U.S. government would ever pay back the funds that they borrowed to finance the, the Revolutionary War. And the fact that he did that establish the credit of the United States, the government, the central government. And I, we've been reaping benefits from that every, you know, ever since. So another good lesson from that period, I think. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, second era, the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, how would you characterize that period? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Chaos. <laughs> Chaos. Okay, all right. Oh, you, had de- you had deflation. Different, different type of chaos, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And why, when you say deflation, <clears throat> that means falling prices. 
they persistently, persistently consistently falling prices. And I think they fell from this, the 1929 crash through the mid mid 1933, I believe they were deflating. It, Roosevelt came in early 1933, and he took the U.S. off the gold standard, and the economy reflated pretty quickly. So, so what's the lesson? Well, first, let me ask you this: what's what's the problem with deflation? Why do why are people why why such the fear of of deflation? What what's the ec- economic rationale for why we don't want falling prices? I mean, if I'm a if I'm a consumer, I kind of like falling prices, don't I? I mean, I can buy the same amount of stuff with less. So why, why, what's the problem with deflation? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, sure. Falling prices are good, but the problem is that they keep falling, right? And then there's a uh, negative spiral that occurs, right? So if I think that price is going to fall further, I'll, I'll keep delaying my spending, keep delaying my investment because, oh, tomorrow I could get a better deal. And so the, the issue is how do you break that psychology? It's really difficult. We don't actually have tools or it's certainly not well understood how to, um, how to get out of that uh, spiral without letting it come to its own natural uh, fruition. And, and so it's, it's dangerous from that perspective, right? On the other end, inflation, we, we actually have some tools. We know what to do. We've been through some cycles. It might be painful. I'm not saying it's a good thing to uh, go through an inflationary um, cycle, but on deflation, it's, uh, it's really unknown. It's hard to break that psychology because it gets ingrained that tomorrow will be, you know, yeah. everything will be cheaper tomorrow. So yeah. just to keep delaying. Yeah, it's just so, economically debilitating. Because? Because what Chris is talking about, the deflationary psychology. I mean, we can fast forward and talk about the housing bust after 2008. Deflationary psychology gripped the housing market and it took a long time to break that. Right. So people so, were delaying buying a home because they thought it was going to be cheaper next quarter, next year, two years from now. So you can see how that, that psychology feeds on itself and just becomes economically debilitating. Right. So, so, so what you're saying is uh, deflation and kind of depression go hand in hand. They're kind of intertwined and feed on each other. And therefore, if you're experiencing deflation, pretty good shot your, your economy's going to hell at the same time. I always think of the, the three D's of a depression. You have the depth, the duration, and deflation. All three of those are characteristic of a, of a depression. Yeah. I guess the other sort of uh, reason, the, and this is, a, this is just kind of a corollary of what you said, is that if you're a debtor, uh, that's a problem, right? Because the <laughs> amount you owe that doesn't tend to go down. <laughs> you got to pay that. No creditor is going to let you off the hook. You owe that money. But if you're in deflation, every, that means the prices for everything, including probably your wages or whatever your income, source of income is, that's falling too. So you have you know falling source of income to pay off your debt. And that's the prescription for default, right? I can't pay my debt, so I default. And that just exacerbates the economic problems. So the, people, the creditors who lent you that money they have a problem. Those are obviously the banks and other creditors. They can't extend credit to anybody else, and everyone's going down into this deep, dark cycle, vicious cycle. That'd be, I guess, another way. Yeah, that's precisely what happened with the housing market during the Great Depression, right? Yeah, exactly. People, people had these balloon payments, and there was no way they could pay them off. I think the other lesson from that period, at least my one of my takeaways, I'm curious what you think, is uh, you know, uh, pegging your economy to, to gold is a uh, 
probably a, a bad idea, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it takes kind of monetary policy out of your hands and hard to react. And in fact, uh, going back to the depression, I think the British they went off the gold standard first, and their economy reflated first. And then I think that's what Roosevelt saw. And then pretty soon after he got elected, I think almost immediately, I think the, he I think he got into office early. Uh, 1933, and he got off the gold standard. We went. He had the bank holiday like immediately mm, when he took office, yeah. and then I think in the summer of 1933, he took us off the gold standard, and that was the be- that was the end of the deflation or beginning of the end of the deflation. There was another bout of deflation later in the decade. We had kind of had a second, you know, round of problems in the late 30s, br- more br- not as brutish, not as not as uh, a little bit more brief, but uh, I think uh, you know, gold is a certainly a fetter that uh, so. That to me is a is a cautionary tale for anyone who wants to go back to anything uh, consistent with the gold standard. And the gold bugs haven't gone away. There's yeah, still some law, the lawmakers, <laughs> some lawmakers still want to put us back on the gold standard. Yeah, they need to read this history or listen to this podcast. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, World they, they War... keep coming back. I don't. I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's every time the national debt keeps rising. So they're they're going to come back out of the woodwork soon. Yeah, because they just don't trust that the we mm. won't see inflation. Yeah. Well, uh, then the next period up in World War II, Korean War, uh, we had pretty high inflation, kind of a you know a, 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 a negative supply shock, I guess, or I don't know how to. This is a supply shock, right? Your 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 economy, all the resources of your economy being diverted to uh, building military equipment and in financing the wars. Uh, so that means shortages for everything else. And demand generally is pretty strong because you know, people are working, the economy is fully employed. That's obviously one of the key reasons why we got out of the 1930s depression deflation, because we had this this uh, huge, massive influx of government spending to fight the war. Um, but that's a, that was a period of, of rationing, supply shortages, uh, generally higher prices. Not not consistently, but, uh, but generally. Uh, so... Um, uh, I'm not sure what lessons to take from that other than, well, the good thing is it got us out of the depression. The bad thing is, you know, obviously uh, people had to live with rationing and everything else. So that wasn't a great time. A lot of people are drawing parallels of what's going on today to after the Korean War and World oh, War II right? because, because of the, sh- the supply shock. Oh, and they're <clears throat> kind of pointing to that to show that it is transitory. It's temporary. Oh, interesting. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I don't know that history very well. In, in the Korean War, did we have shortages? Were there a lot of shortages? I suppose there was, but I don't. I don't remember. I don't know that history very well. Neither do I. Yeah, interesting. But I know we had, we had shortages around World War Two. Yeah, then I. Yeah, then for, we sure. Did. Yeah, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Oh, so I that's the that's the event you're pointing to, I guess. Yeah, and also people point to after the Korean War. So I assume there were some shortages. I just don't know for. I haven't looked at yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know that history mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, the Korean War, I mean, there was a lot of American troops overseas for that, fighting that war. It's shocking. You know, if you look at, you know, the percent of the labor force that was overseas, it was very high. You know, people for kind of not focus on Korean War, but that was that was a pretty all-encompassing war for us. We were pretty, I mean, much of our economic economy was wrapped up in that war. So very important. Okay, here's the, here's another, the fourth uh, era of inflation. Uh, so we're now up to the mid-60s. I call it the uh, great inflation, uh, and I, I don't think people recognize, but inflation started to really take off in the second half of the 1960s, 
and then you know went stratospheric in the 70s and peaked in the early 80s. I believe CPI, consumer price inflation, peaked at close to 15%, I believe, in the early 1980s before the worker kind of stuff. So I've got a few takeaways from that period that I think are good lessons. What are yours? Any Anything you would point to that uh, are lessons for, uh, coming uh, that are helpful in, in thinking about inflation? Oh, certainly a lot of lessons for macroeconomics, right? All the mm-hmm. models broke down and didn't yeah. contemplate these types of oil price shocks, um, reliance on the Phillips curve and whatnot. So certainly there were a lot of lessons learned, or hopefully they were learned, it seems like. Uh, Maybe this is a good time to explain mm-hmm. to the listener the Phillips curve. Because we'll come back to that. Now we're getting into the Phillips curve already. Well, just because uh, Chris brought it up, so people are asking the Phillips curve. I, you know, if you're not not mm-hmm. an economist, you may not know what that is. What is the Phillips curve? So it's a relationship between uh, unemployment and inflation. So there is a trade-off uh, between the two, or there, there. Uh, I guess there's a presumed trade-off. Or prior to 19, the early mid 60s, there was a, a quite strong uh, trade-off. Um, but then over time, things have uh, have broken down a bit, and the theory has been revived in, in, in various fashions. You know, had to tinker around short-term versus long-term uh, Phillips curve. So the um, there's a lot of debate whether this relationship actually exists anymore uh, between the two, or if it takes so so many uh, heroic assumptions uh, to maintain. I think it still exists. I just think the relationship is much weaker than it was in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Okay. Fair so enough. Yeah, more dynamic, just, I guess. Exactly. Or, or the measurement is also questionable. Like, how do you, how should you be measuring slack? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it truly unemployment? Is it uh, employment population ratio? What's the, Pro- what's the right primary, measurement? Primary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this in the, in the, uh, in the context of current, the, our discussion about what's going on now, but, my sense is the Phillips curve, that relationship between unemployment and inflation is what I would call very non-linear. You know, there, there isn't much of a relationship until unemployment gets to a certain point. And at that point, things change very quickly. You know, wage and price pressures, you know, develop very rapidly. So, you know, nothing, yet you're at 6% unemployment, obviously, no, no, no problem. 5% unemployment, no problem. 4% unemployment, no problem. Three and a half percent unemployment, nothing really. Three percent, boom, you got a problem. You know, uh, so it kind of hit some kind of tipping point in labor markets and psychology, and you're off and running. So feels very, very nonlinear to me. Um, but the other two lessons from that period is, yeah, with regards to the Fed, is don't let inflation get out of control, or it's really, really painful to tame inflation. And okay, then, well, what does that mean to get out of control? Like consistently above their target. I mean, I think why? Because it dislodges inflation expectations. There you go. Inflation expectations, right? That's the key. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, that's the lesson from the '60s and '70s. Okay, so what is inflation expectations? So it's people. I mean, you can. There's all different measures of inflation expectations, but it's basically what people or businesses anticipate inflation to be one year from now, five years from now, ten years from now. Right. Right. So in that period, inflation expectations rose, and that's what you meant when the you said the Federal Reserve lost control. Correct. And that's at that point, it's very difficult to get those expectations and thus overall actual inflation back down. Yeah, to get them back down, Volcker, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve, had to jack up interest rates very, very quickly, get them very high to bring realized inflation and inflation expectations back down. Yeah. Okay. Here's my historical 
narrative of that period. So you, you go back into the mid 60s, late 60s, that was the period of Vietnam and of the great society. So uh, Lyndon Johnson, the president, ran a highly expansionary, what they call highly expansionary fiscal policy. That is, I'm going to spend a lot of government money, you know, it's kind of sort of the debate we're having now around inflation, deficit finance, I borrow money to do it. And at that point, the economy coming into that period was pretty close to full employment. Unemployment was very low. The Phillips curve was working fine, but he really pushed on the uh, uh, accelerator and the economy uh, started to overheat. Then you get into the early 70s uh, and all of a sudden you have uh, oil price shocks. That's the, op- uh, the oil embargoes. There was one in 73, I believe, and of course, another one in 1980. And that was a very significant supply shock. It hurt growth, but it really jacked up inflation. At that time, you know, the economy is very dependent on energy. We consumed a lot much, much more energy than we produced. So that really, uh, you know, jacked up in inflation. And then this when inflation expectations come in, the Fed decided, oh, I'm going to focus on the weaker growth created by the higher oil prices. That's, you know, the negatives of that and not focus on inflation and therefore, they kept interest rates very low for a long period of time. Let those higher inflation expectations become entrenched. And then you're in this vicious wage price spiral where, you know, workers think, everyone thinks inflation is going to be high. So workers demand a higher pay increase. Businesses say, fine, no problem. I, I'll give you that pay increase because they know they can pass that through to their customer in the form of higher price. Workers see that. They say, okay, you got to pay me more. You got to raise my wages even faster. And you can see how you get into this kind of very dark wage price spiral. This sounds, this dynamic I just described sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sort of, right? Around the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Same kind of dynamics. People are arguing the same kind of dynamics. I don't believe it to be the case. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But, you know, that's when people worry about inflation today, many of them are hearkening back to that period of great inflation in the late 60s, go all the way going up into the 1980s, right? I mean, that's why so, people are talking about stagflation, because that's the last time we had a yeah. period of stagflation, which is yeah. very high inflation and low growth or high unemployment. And that's a central bank's worst nightmare, like you were discussing. Like, do you focus on inflation or do you try to stimulate the economy? You can't, you know, win both. Yeah, of course, now the, 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 the nice thing about the, that we learn from that period that we're using now and the Fed is using now is that inflation expectations matter. So back then, inflation expectations rose. Well, back then, no one was even talking about inflation expectations. That wasn't even on the kind of the the, the nomenclature. They weren't even thinking about it, and so they uh, had no way of measuring it, and they had no way of thinking about it, and they didn't respond to it. But today, we know inflation expectations matter a lot, and so uh, because they're stable and low, the Fed's saying, "Hey, I still feel comfortable that inflation is going to come back in. I should be focused on the." negative uh, shock created by the pandemic, you know, the ill effects on the labor market, the fact that unemployment and underemployment are still relatively high. So the difference between now and then, big difference between now and then, there's many, but the big, big one is inflation expectations. You know, just even focusing on them is a big difference, but but measuring them and then, you know, uh, basing policy on them are also a big difference. Okay. Uh, Then we, of course, uh, as you pointed out, Paul Volcker, who became chair of the Federal Reserve in the late 70s, uh, figured out that the only way that they're going to wring out these inflation expectations, bring inflation down, was just to kill the economy. And so we had, mm-hmm. he jacked up interest rates. They went into double digits. You know, mortgage rates were 15, 20%. 
back in the early 80s, did a number on the economy that kind of wrung out inflation, inflation expectations. Not completely. There, you know, Alan Greenspan, the, the chair of the Fed who took over from Volcker uh, in the 80s, had to do more work and keep in, interest rates relatively high to ring out, uh, further ring out inflation and inflation expectations. But Paul Volcker did all the heavy lifting during that period. Yep. And that uh, got us into the early 90s and mid 90s. And this is a period of relatively low and uh, stable inflation. I call this the great, the period of the great moderation, you know, from 1990 through 2010. And here, uh, we benefited from a positive supply shock, right? Right? That was a period of the te technology booming. Yeah, That's when yeah, we had IT, right? So we had a positive supply shock. It was, you know, this the internet came on, uh, generated a lot of economic activity, uh, increased the uh, productive capability and, and the size of the economy, which uh, took the pressure off inflation. So this is a period of very strong growth and relatively low and stable uh, inflation. Uh, so it was a kind of a, a nirvana period that took us into the uh, early uh, early 2000s. Was there any lessons from that period that you would take away from that period? I don't know about lesson, but I would throw trade in there as well, right? This was a period of uh, trade stabilization, right? We had NAFTA, we had lots of trade deals uh, around the globe. And presumably that helped to contain the costs as well. You know, of course, China entered into the WTO in 2001, and that really changed a lot, right? That really uh, brought down goods prices because a lot of goods manufacturing globally got pushed into China where the costs were lower, and that brought down goods price inflation. That's a good, that's a good point. That's a very mm -hmm. good point. So you had a technology boom, and you had this uh, increase in globalization. I guess deregulation might have also played a bit of a role, right? Wouldn't you think? In terms of, I mean- uh, you know, you go back to, I guess the seminal event was when I guess uh, this is kind of anti-union when, when Reagan broke the air traffic controllers union back in 19, I think it was 1980, uh, or the early eighties. Uh, and you had a period of deregulation in lots of different industries that also, I think affected, you know, labor's negotiating power, helped to reduce inflation expectations and also, uh, cause prices in different sectors to, uh, at least the rate of growth slow or even decline in some sectors. So that might've played a bit of a role then too. I think a lot of reasons for that, but uh, for that, for that slowing and moderation in inflation, but regulation might play a role kind of on the list, towards the bottom of the list. I'm just throwing this out there. Do you think income inequality or wealth inequality over that period played a role in keeping inflation low? How so? We just get the distribution of income skewed away from people that have a high marginal propensity to consume towards those that have a high marginal propensity to save. I'm just throwing it out there. I just, Cause that's another thing that occurred in you know, the 1990s and early 2000s. I think that was a, certainly a result of all this, the globalization, the deregulation, the technology. The decline in the unions. Decline in the unions all played a role in the skewing of the income and wealth distribution. But it's, I don't know, can, I, can you connect the dots back to inflation? At least directly connected. Not up. directly, but maybe through like income, income wage growth, things like that. Yeah. I don't know, Chris, what do you I, think? I, yeah, I think the causality, naturally, yeah, I think sure. the causality goes the other way, but right, those other People. factors yeah. caused inequality, but inequality leading to lower inflation. I don't know. I don't That's know. a stretch. No. I will say one I other mean, key takeaway. Oh, okay. go ahead. 
No, go ahead. One of the, just looking through the whole list here, or as we're talking through this, psychology is such a large component of this, right? Really, if you want to be a student of inflation, it sounds like you have to be an armchair psychologist to really understand uh, what's going on. And I think the great moderation, right? You also had a period of you know, fiscal discipline. I think people felt pretty comfortable uh, uh, that during that period that inflation was not going to take off or deflation was not going to creep in. So I wonder if that also played a role here, just that consumer psychology was pretty stable uh, during that period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, I think, yeah, you're right. Psych sentiment, psychology, exp uh, which I wrap up into expectations. expectations yeah. yeah, I think they're very, very critical. I guess the other, going back to the technology boom, that was a period of pretty rapidly the declining yeah. prices. Remember, there was out, outright deflation for uh, chips and other technology, uh, internet technology. And that, I'm sure, had a, you know, a, a role in bringing down inflation in a very significant way. Yeah. So oh, well, on that note, <laughs> the other another issue here is measurement throughout this whole period as well. When we yeah, good, good. are measuring inflation as well, so that's a real that's another issue just in terms of the whole discussion here is how how can you measure prices over time and how do you do that consistently? How do you account for those quality changes? So just a a little grain of I think we've got all the arrows right, but a little grain of salt that. Know, what we it, how we're measuring inflation there. so what are you what are you referring to when you say when you talk about the technology boom in measurement what are you referring to just the so inflation overall is a is a measurement of general price levels over time how do you control for changes in, um, in the quality of the goods over time is a really challenging technical issue right we're not just talking about apples in one period versus apples in another period we're talking about apple computers in one period versus apple computers in another period which right. have a very different uh, uh set of capabilities right so if you just look at the price the list price of the, those two goods or those two computers let's say right they might be the same but one is substantially more powerful so how do you control for those changes in quality uh over time and that's something that the uh, bls has struggled with I think any economist struggles with uh, uh, to make those uh, types of quality measurements. So when we're looking at some of those uh, inflation figures during a period of rapid technological change, uh, it could be difficult to, to right. really grasp the, the true underlying uh, price changes. On a similar note, oh, sorry. No, the, go ahead, Ryan. In that period, the Fed shifted their focus from the consumer price index to mm. the personal consumption expenditure deflator. So they're essentially measuring the same thing, consumer prices, but they have different methodologies, they have different weightings. You know, one uses fixed weights, which is the CPI. And Greenspan argued, I think it was in the mid-1990s, that the CPI was overstating inflation. So you know, that that change, you know, going away from the CPI to the PCE deflator doesn't seem to make a big difference, but it does today. And next year it's gonna be really important. We can talk about that, that down the road. Yeah, yeah, good point. Just to uh, strike the point home, though, for the listener, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the keeper of the CPI data, the Consumer Price Inflation Data, and I guess it's the Bureau of Economic Analysis who uses the CPI and the producer price indices from the BLS to construct the core PCE, they do make quality adjustments. You're just saying that's pretty tough to do in any time, but particularly yeah. in a period of rapid technological change, because things are improving, quote unquote, and measuring that's pretty tough to do. That's what you're saying. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have a lot of respect yeah. for the work yeah. they do. Uh, certainly, exactly. it's just very difficult to disentangle. Right. 
Okay, this brings us up to the last historical era, inflation era, and that's the period of low inflation compared to disinflation, which is decelerating uh, price growth. You know, so there was some about the deflation concerns. And this was after the financial crisis uh, in the last decade before the, the pandemic. And it's w- weird to think about it now, but just before the pandemic hit, uh, the Federal Reserve was struck, and every central bank in the developed world was struggling with how low inflation was. It was just consistently below their targets, uh, and uh, they're trying to get it up. Uh, and so what's the lesson learned from that period of, well, let's call it low inflation period? I mean, what caused that? And you know, what's the lesson from that period? Any views on that? Well, we had a, a very, very slow recovery after the financial crisis, which you know, the catalyst of a recession can also factor into the strength of the recovery. And when you have a financial crisis, usually the recoveries are much slower. So I think that's one reason why central banks were, were struggling to get uh, inflation higher. Yeah. We saw a lot of slack in the labor market. I mean, we didn't yep. you know, get a lot of improvement in the job market for years. This gets, gets back to sort of the, the Phillips curve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what you're arguing is that you came out of the financial crisis, the economy grew very slowly, didn't absorb all the slack. Unemployment was high or other measures of slack in the labor market signal a lot of excess capacity there. People weren't working. That kept wages down and prices down. That's why one reason why I had low inflation. Of course, China and globalization were still playing a key role there, uh, keeping inflation down. Um, and uh, Inflation expectations, they, they were starting to migrate lower. They held in pretty well, though. And that's, one, I guess, one reason why we never experienced you know, outright deflation because people still believed at the end of the day the Federal Reserve and other central banks would get what they wanted. Um, uh, so they inflation expectations uh, held firm. But that was that was a, a period when it was, and I think we came to the conclusion that one that you mentioned earlier, Chris, that you know uh, we have pretty good tools uh, for bringing down inflation. We don't have really great tools for bringing inflation up or certainly for in a deflationary environment to ending a deflationary period. So that, that's another lesson, I think, from that period. And the Europeans, I don't know, they're in Japanese. I'm not so sh- sure that, I think we all kind of feel we're broken free of the low inflation period. I think we feel that way at the moment. I'm not sure if that's still, a, if that's how the Europeans and Japanese think. I, I'm very curious. Well, the other lesson is don't flinch when you see inflation for the first time for central banks. I mean, that's what the Fed did. They were very, very patient waiting for inflation to accelerate. Other central banks, as soon as they saw, you know, the white of inflation's eyes, they panicked and they started raising interest rates and then their economies backtracked. Right. This is coming out of the financial crisis you're saying. The Mm -hmm. Fed waited, 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 waited. And inflation, even though it was low here in the US, it was much stronger than it was in Europe and Japan where the well, particularly Europe, where they kind of reacted immediately to the high inflation, kind of cut off the growth and, you know, never got back to a place where they felt good about inflation. Yeah. And I think the other lesson during that period is that our economy is much less uh, sensitive or reliant on uh, energy prices. So in the past, you know, back, mm-hmm. going back to the 70s and 80s, we talked about it, that led to a lot of higher inflation, persistently higher inflation. Now, fluctuations in energy prices have a very temporary impact on on consumer prices. Right. Hey, one other quick thing before we get to inflation in the current context, the, why 2%? Why, why does the Federal Reserve Board have a 2% inflation target? I, I got my explanation. I'd love, be curious to hear what your explanation is. Why 2? Why not 1.56897 or 3.4582? Why 
You, 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 you want to go first, Chris? Oh, go ahead. So I, I guess we're uh, asserting, yeah, that everyone agrees that it should be uh, greater than zero. It should be some positive number, right? Right, because zero is too close to the bound deflation. We already established that. But why two versus three? Like, yeah, that's a. Or four. I don't have a, a strong opinion on that. I think you have to choose something. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of rationale. I mean, two percent is the golden rule. Most central banks in developed economies is that they aim for two percent inflation because it's far enough above zero where you don't worry about deflation, and also it's far enough above zero where if you get these measurement issues that you're actually not targeting too low of inflation. I'll give you two reasons. One, uh, substantive reasons. One, if you're at two, that means some industries, some businesses are pretty close to zero. And it's it's not a great thing if any business or industry is experiencing outright deflation, right? For the reasons we articulated before. So you would you want inflation set high enough that no industry or business of consequence is in a deflationary environment. I think that's part of it. Second is, you know, if you have 2%, uh, it's high enough that, you know, you have the Federal Reserve and other central banks have a little room to lower, you have low inflation, you have low interest rates. If it's too low, you have no room for it to maneuver. And this is, you know, if, it was one per- if you said at 1%, then the Fed doesn't, interest rates are going to be very low through even the best of times. Yeah. And the Fed doesn't have a lot of room to react when things are tough. Uh, and that's why there's a, a move afoot, or at least there's been a lot of debate that maybe two is too low. You know, maybe it should be three, because if it's three, that means the growth in the economy is strong enough in the good times that and interest rates are high enough in the good times that when the bad times come, when you have a recession, you have enough room to lower rates and don't hit the zero lower bound. And have to engage in things like quantitative easing, bond buying, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I, I think there are yeah. some pretty good reasons why you'd want to keep you know, inflation uh, you know, around around 2%. I think there's also lots of discussion around uh, whether the, the 2% target has been interpreted as a ceiling or as, mm-hmm. uh, as a median. Mm-hmm. So far, or previously, it had been really a market a ceiling, yeah. right? So no you, go sense, to, but, you, you go to 25 to get two, right? That's the, I think that's Well, the, if it's the, two now, now I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, because you follow the Fed closely. I think the they changed the monetary framework back in last summer and they said, okay, it's not, 2% is not the ceiling. 2% is kind of through the cycle, yeah. you know? Right. We, some, if you're below two as for some points of time, you have to be above two for some point of time so that on average, through the business cycle, you're two, which, you know, if you do the, if you think about inflation expectations for a second, if you don't do that, if 2% is your ceiling, inflation expectations will always be below two, which means right. you'll never get to two. So, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and that's simple arithmetic, I think, you know, mm-hmm. if you kind of think about it. Anyway, okay. All right. We're real time. Uh, we're talking about, you know, inflation today. And obviously, inflation is uh, up a lot. The consumer price index is up uh, 6% plus year over year, the highest in over 30 years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion around this. We debated it on our last podcast a little bit. You know, maybe we should reprise that and, you know, see where people stand. So uh, just to summarize kind of the the kind of the broader theories around inflation and inflation dynamics, you know, we began with the pre-Fed uh, uh, period. That, that goes to the theory of um, uh, the monetary theory of inflation that, you know, what the Fed does ultimately determines inflation, which I think is the case. But the view here is that the Fed controls the money supply and the money supply ultimately uh, controls the, the rate of inflation. We talked about the Phillips curve 
you know, the relationship between unemployment and inflation is another kind of way of thinking about inflation. We've talked about supply shocks. So we've talked about negative supply shocks, oil price increases, positive supply shocks, a technology boom. Of course, the pandemic is a negative supply shock. Of course, we talked about inflation expectations. These are all, uh, you know, key elements about uh, how people are thinking about inflation dynamics today. So, you know, you add it all up uh, and we're sitting here today. Uh, the key question is, uh, and it's the question everyone's asking, is this 6% inflation temporary? So the first question I have for you is, well, what does temporary mean? Uh, you know, or the Fed, in Fed, Fed nomenclature, transitory, another way of saying temporary. What, what does that mean to you, temporary, transitory? Sorry, I'll go. I mean, Chris, Chris is checking his notes. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's I thought you were all over this one. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, I wanted a little, you know. Go ahead. It's, there's no time element to transitory. So you don't want to say it's six months, eight months, 12 months. It's whether or not the underlying fundamentals are going to support persistently high inflation. And that is just not going to happen. Chris, do you have a, you have a, a definition of temporary transitory? Um, I think Dryance is a good one, but I would throw the acceleration element, kind of that second derivative uh, in there, right? If you have, if you see that the inflation rate is still high, but is, is falling, right? I view that it's going towards a, uh, that two, two and a quarter percent target that to my mind indicates something that's transitory. If it's accelerating or if it's, it's maintaining, right? And that's more of a permanent effect. Well, in the current context, the first derivative is certainly positive. That's the rate of change is positive. And the second right. derivative, which is the rate of the rate of change, is also positive. It's accelerating. So that would not be consistent with the idea that it's transitory, temporary, by your definition. Well, it's that's so for the next quarter, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next year, that second derivative. Oh, but but I, I want a definition that is functional, that helps me. I mean, so, so you're saying... So if what are you saying? It comes back down to psychology then, I guess. It's the belief that the, uh, that the rate of change is going to uh, decline over time. Okay. That's the right. answer, in my view. Okay. It's inflation expectations. Yeah. If yeah. Infl inflation expectations are low, people believe inflation is going to come back down, then it's transitory. It's going to be transitory. It, you know, it's, they're going to come back down. It's just a matter of time. It may, take a little, it may not be next month, the next quarter. Expectations are high rising that's no longer transitory that that is a okay. that means we're not going back to where we were right makes sense yeah i think mm -hmm. we're in the same spot yeah same spot okay and people believe <laughs> it's transitory because of what we're going through you have supply chain shocks they know that that's going to get wrung out and that that will be disinflationary next year right okay so there's there's um a few theories of, of what's going on here that have important implications uh, what, uh, in terms of inflation and whether – by the way, I, I'll say it unequivocally, I think this inflation is temporary transitory, that by this time next year, inflation will be well, – you know, it won't, may not be all the way back to the Fed's target, but a, the, to your point, Chris, second derivative, it will be decelerating – to the point that I don't think we're going to be really talking about inflation, certainly not in the public discourse. Economists will be, but no one else will be. Are you guys on board with that? Anyone disagree with mm -hmm. that perspective? No, you're both on board with that. Yeah, I'm on board. I think okay, it could fine. be even faster. Okay. And maybe this is a good time to reprise our debate, oh, which we had in a podcast <laughs> early on. 
uh, early on was, uh, you know, like our third pot, second, third podcast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back in the spring of this year. And we, correct me if I'm wrong, if I have characterized this wrong, we were focused on uh, consumer price inflation. And I set in our forecast was it for it to settle back into around the mid 2%, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half percent, something like that. That's our baseline and still is. And I was saying, and that's where you landed, Chris. You said that's where we're gonna we're gonna go mm-hmm. back to two and a quarter, two and a half. I was saying no, it's probably gonna end up being higher than that. Probably north you're, of you're two. And a half. You were closer to three. Three, but I didn't think it was gonna land there forever at three. I mean that no. that yeah, we're, that was kind right. of sort of where we're headed. Two and a half to three, and you were like <laughs> less than two and a quarter. You were like two, maybe one and three quarters to two and a quarter, something like that. Right, Ryan? I think Chris was two to two and a quarter, right? Yeah, I think so. Ben's got it real. Yeah, I think that's so what was it was. Well, no, no, wait. I, I was, was one number two and a quarter. Yeah. Was that course that said that we were looking at the core consumer expenditure deflator then? Okay, fine. All right. Mm-hmm. So so in terms of the south. core consumer expenditure deflator, it was two to two and a quarter for Chris. I was two and a half, two and a, I don't think I was at three for the core CP, consumer expenditure deflator. I was north of that. You were south of that. So mm-hmm. I know we're getting bogged down on the numbers, but bottom line- is everyone still happy with where they're forecasting inflation to go? No. You're okay. So where are you now, Ryan? I, by the way, I'm very happy with where I am. I'm assuming Chris is happy with where. Oh, he yeah. Is. Yeah. Chris is happy. Remember the, remember the bet was average over the next five years. Oh, oh I don't remember that part. Okay, I remember that. <laughs> we got to check the tape. I thought we were talking about average. Okay, well, anyway. Ben, ben. So, okay. <laughs> All right, so what are you saying then? Are you happy? With, you're not happy with your forecast? No, because I think gonna, okay. getting back to the psychology and inflation yeah. expectations, they're going to get pinned where the Fed wants them to be, and that's a little bit above two. So I think that's where we're, I think we're going to be closer to what Chris is saying. Oh, you so. know what? He, he This is very crafty on Ryan's part. He, he, oh, crafty. Very nuanced. What he's saying is, I wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what what happened? Fed, was was Fed changed its framework of monetary they did. policy. Therefore, I'm changing my forecast. Like kind of when the, when the facts change, you got to change yeah. your opinion. So that actually, that's very creative. Very good of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great wrong, quote, but, Warren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Good point, though. I, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so okay. Here oh, wait, wait, wait. But what? but you're um, right. Your argument, as I recall, was demographics. You were it was arguing. It wasn't that. Right. He was right for the. He's changing his view, but he was, you know. Well, that's okay. The Fed is certainly part of that argument, yeah. but mm-hmm. I, I wonder if his demographic uh, outlook has changed at all. Is that no? Nope. Okay. I so, still think that's a big deal. And I think productivity is going to be a lot stronger than people think. And that, as we talked on the past podcast, mm-hmm. that's the firewall between you know a strong economy oh. and inflation. Right. Right. You get positive again. This positive supply shock lifting, and you're, what's that work from anywhere? Yeah. Kind of yeah, we have work from anywhere. Businesses, you know, during the pandemic invested a ton in equipment and software. So I right. think productivity is going to be stronger than it was, very much stronger than it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So that's a supply shock argument mm-hmm. that, that we're going to get a pot. We're getting a positive supply shock, which is kind of, first it's a, the pandemic initially is a negative supply shock, but we are going to get a, some positives out of this on the other side of it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think to uh, your point, we're not going to be talking about inflation, you know, this time next year. It's, it's going to be heading back towards the Fed's target. And then we're going to over undershoot. So we're going to fall below 2% for a period of time right. and then come back up. Okay. 
So our, our, our collective view, uh, uh, and I'm making this characterize this, and this, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we're saying is the pandemic is a negative supply shock. You know, it obviously hurt growth and is causing inflation to rise, but it's not going to be permanent or persistent because inflation expectations remain well anchored. And moreover, uh, a lot of the inflation is related due to the effects of the pandemic. And as the pandemic fades, you know, supply chains, labor market issues will iron themselves out and inflation will moderate and come back in. And where it actually lands, give or take, you know, we're debating whether it's a little higher than the Fed's target or the Fed's target a little bit below, but we're all still saying basically that inflation is going to get back down to something we all feel comfortable with that we're not going to be talking about. Is that a fair Mm -hmm. characterization? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Let me try one other uh, thing out on you because this is another kind of of a strain of thought in the current debate and discussion around inflation. That is that fiscal policy is the cause of the higher inflation, that the American Rescue Plan, you know, we've had a lot of fiscal support during the pandemic, beginning with the CARES Act back in March of last year, extending through the American Rescue Plan March of this year, 5 trillion in total, 25% of GDP, that that is the cause of this higher inflation. What do you think of that argument? You know, you didn't bring it up, so I don't think it's on the top of your list, but do you think this is playing much of a role here or any of a role or any having any impact whatsoever? I think it's having a little bit of an impact. I think it helped exacerbate the supply chain issues because there's economic payments. I, I think they should have been spread out over a period of time. We, there was just too much money going into two, uh, people's pockets. Then good spending went through the roof. And that exacerbated the supply chain problems that we have today. Chris? Yeah, I'd buy that. Some some effect, but I would say actually pretty Small. minor. Pretty minor. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't connect the dots, tell you the truth. I mean, the the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, really juiced things up when we needed it back in March of this year, you know, into April, maybe into May, before the Delta variant of the pandemic hit. By the time the Delta variant of the pandemic hit, which was you know beginning in June, really in July, August into September, the, the American Rescue Plan had turned into uh, a, you know uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't a supportive growth. It was uh, actually turning contractionary. It really, it really wasn't providing much support whatsoever. The the bulk of the stimulus from that was back in the spring. By the summer, that stimulus was largely gone and, and fading pretty quickly. And right now. You know, it's turning into a bit, bit of a headwind uh, to economic growth. The other thing is that demand, you know, sort of the channel through which the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, the fiscal support would influence inflation is through demand, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm, you're saying mm-hmm. fiscal support, government spending, tax breaks, demand, demand means inflation, but demand growth got hit hard in the summer. Demand growth came to a standstill, you know, because of the Delta variant. So it's hard for me in terms of the timing of all of this, and even you know, kind of the intuition behind it, that you can connect those dots. I just don't see it playing a role of any consequence here. Well, what about this argument? You got the economic stimulus premiums, a lot of demand, reduced inventories, and then when the summer came, Delta variant hit, supply chains got worse. There's shortages of things that drove the prices of those things higher. Yeah, I think that's a real stretch. I think the I think supply chains were getting back online. Or, you know, there there were still problems. Labor markets were still a bit scrambled, but it, you know they were getting back to normal. And then the Delta hit, 
and you know re, uh, just exacerbated everything, uh, rescrambled everything. So I don't know. Uh, I think that's a pretty weak, pretty weak thread. Yeah, which actually is important because the Build Back Better agenda, which is being debated now in Congress, people say that's going to be inflationary. Which I don't know. That's certainly not what's going on now. Is anything related to what's going on with Build Back Better? Anyway, we're running out of time, uh, and I promise that we keep this uh, uh, to the time. So I'm going to stop right there, unless there's anything else you wanted to add. I thought that was a pretty good history lesson. What do you think? Should we do this again? Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I think sure. the, the the final point here I'd make is we got to be, and I've said this a few times on these podcasts about different things, and maybe about inflation, but if, we got to be humble about this because inflation is a very... Everything economic is complex, but inflation is particularly complex phenomena. Because Chris keeps pointing out, it's also related on psychology and sentiment, which you know, very difficult to measure, very difficult to gauge. And so we've got to be humble here in terms of our understanding. It's it's rather limited, and it makes this a particularly uncertain period going forward. Well, I'd say we have to be humble, certainly, but we also have to le- learn did lessons. Humble? Did I say humble? You, you did say humble. Yeah, yeah. I'm, humble. I'm agreeing with you. Okay. <laughs> we have to be humble, but we also have to learn the lessons from the past, right? So, yeah, like the, the like, like the gold standard, right? Mm-hmm. That really, we should be putting that. To, we shouldn't be spending any more energy <laughs> on that uh, on that topic and focusing on the future. But agree, there we are. Right, and also that the money supply causes inflation. That used to, but that's no yeah. longer the case. Yeah. So you got to learn that these relationships, we talked about the Phillips curve, yeah. you know, M2 money supply growth, the, those relationships change over time. So you don't want to get wedded to your models. Totally. The long run M2, right? You're on board with that, right? Yeah, long run, yeah, but not now. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, Ryan, I'm looking forward to the field trip to the second bank of the United States. So I like okay. this field trip right. idea. We got to get going. We're going to call this a podcast. Hopefully you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and we'll see you on the other side. Take care now. Bye-bye.